We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. And welcome back to another Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean, from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Paul and Tim will be talking about the 3-2 victory away to Ludogorets in the Champions League. Messer Ozil's goal. Hey, what a goal that was. How dare he do such a thing in that moment of the game when we need a goal to win the match and time is ticking away. How dare he do that? How dare you mess up? It was uh, rather, rather lovely. I've seen it about a thousand times. I'm sure we all have. Long may skills like that continue. Hopefully continues on Sunday. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. Back after the North London derby. It's a big one. Till then. Arsenal escaped Bulgaria with a 3-2 victory, but Mesut Ozil has to stay behind as he is wanted in connection with the murder of three Ludogrets players. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. It is the utmost pleasure for me to introduce brand new to the podcast, Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Real pleasure to have you on for the first time. Also, first time uh, on the podcast joining us, Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause No My Pants. Hello, Pause. Woo! Real pleasure to have you gentlemen on. I think you're going to find this is a great podcast to participate in. I feel like just saying you're new, like, kind of kind of makes it exciting again. Freshens us up, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, it was an interesting and entertaining match, and we will get to all of that. But first, we have to put you to sleep with Tim's travel log, everybody's favorite <laughs> section of the podcast. Tim, how was Bulgaria? Yeah, it was great. It was brilliant. It was um, it was very cheap, very very pleasant, uh, very nice people, and 
Um, yeah, one of my best friends from uni lives five minutes from the stadium, so that was absolutely great. So we, we had some food, did some culture, some wine, some beer, some football, all good. What more could you want? What, just out of curiosity, what is did some culture a euphemism for? Is that like a bunch of illicit <laughs> drugs? Is it group sex? Like in this particular case, what's the euphemism? Well, we, we did do that, but um, that, that wasn't what I was referring to. I was referring oh, to, you know, doing, doing nice things like a walking tour and food tour um, nice. and stuff Very like nice. that and soaking out some of the local culture and history. Okay, well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad you had a nice time. I'm glad we all got to hear about it. But let's get on to the match. And Paul... What? What an unorthodox and unexpected lineup. Now, I will admit in the offline chat, I said I thought he might start Ramsey uh, in part because it would give him the perfect excuse not to start Ramsey in the North London Derby because, you know, oh, well, he played from the start midweek. He's going to come up a little short for Sunday. But um, do you think the Tuesday-Sunday split, the fact that we maybe had that extra day, influenced the manager's decision with respect to the starting lineup? Uh, yeah, well, it certainly gave him like five days for people to recover. So I think that influenced some. The Ramsey one, uh, you and I had a little joke in our little WhatsApp session where you were, uh, you expressed total astonishment that you were for once correct. I was astonished at being correct. (laughs) uh, And I joked that I was for once incorrect, but actually I'm. Pretty much always wrong on my predictions. So I didn't see this one coming, especially from the manager's comments on Ramsey leading mm-hmm. up to it implied that it implied he was going to play off the bench possibly for a little while, that he wasn't ready. Um, and some might argue from his performance on the pitch that uh, the manager was right first time round. But that said, um, Giroud starting up front, I guess, wasn't too much of a shock. I guess the frustrating thing is that he started with Alexis and uh, and therefore con- contaminated him until you know they find a better work and groove so but uh, Alexis playing I mean if you look over the last few seasons really we shouldn't be that astonished that Alexis and Ozil started uh Wobi got a little rest uh, maybe after his exertions in the EFL two games ago, that that might make a little bit of sense if if he's going to end up playing in the North London Derby. Uh, I mean, the midfield pairing was very interesting. Uh, Chaka and Kakala. And, of course, there'll be lots of opinions on it. And, of course, you can all guess what mine was. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so maybe we can skip that section. Uh, you know, Gibbs... Uh, no surprise that he played left back. Um, here he was up against a pacey team, and we got to analyze him for that. I'm sure we'll talk about that. He had some, he had a low moment, you could say, and uh, but I, I think overall maybe he held his own. But we couldn't debate that. So, uh, you know, who should he have played that he didn't have on here? I don't know really. I, I think looking back on it, it, it was maybe a bit more predictable outside of the Ramsey call, mm-hmm. uh, but. Everything else, I guess, we've seen before, and even in a game, the, the real debating point was: was this a game we had to win? Well, you know, how should we approach it? And it's another one of those. It's a classic one of those where the manager is damned if he does or doesn't. So, so there we were. Well, especially when you go down two goals early. I mean, you could yeah. argue we would have been bringing players on pretty early to try to recover it, but. Uh, yeah, because I think a little bit of my sh- spiel was debating the philosophy of going a few goals up and then. Uh, pulling players off and how that can go horribly wrong. 
and uh, we yeah. didn't even get that far. Yeah, so Tim, before we get into the meat of the game itself, do you have anything to add on the selections you made? Um, not especially. I, I, I expected it to be a bit of a mishmash of a team. Um, I, I had a feeling he was going to play Ramsey, but I thought he might play him in the centre and start with Chamberlain. I thought he'd give Iwobi a rest because Iwobi's substitutions are becoming exponentially earlier as the games go on. Um, and I think he wanted to have a proper look at Ramsey ahead of Saturday. I fully expected Giroud to start. I, I thought that was a perfectly okay call because, um, you know, we're going to have to rotate the squad at some point. Um, and he's a fairly decent player to rotate in, even if I would question um, the balance of the team overall. Um, but there, there weren't that many surprises for me. I think there are a few players there. He was he was just trying to get a little bit fitter and a little bit sharper. I, I don't see Ramsey starting on Sunday. I think he'll have the, um, not the excuse, but the reason that he's just not quite at the mark physically yet for a game like that. I think for Kieran Gibbs, it was a case of, Go on then, see if you can play your way into the team, play your way into my starting lineup for Sunday, because I gather Monreal wasn't really that badly injured and could have played, and I think it was a, go on then, let's let, let's see if you can get in the team. And maybe well, well, in that case, to... he won't appreciate seeing the video of the second Ludogratz goal. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and, um, and maybe even to an extent that, that gauntlet was thrown down to Olivier Giroud as well, though, go on then, let's, let's see if you, you know, let's see what you've got. Um, and see if you can play your way into into my team. And yeah, I, I, I suppose we'll go into this. But my overriding conclusion is, um, let's go back to what was working on Sunday. And um, I, I wouldn't really have any of those players in the starting lineup on Sunday. Yeah. So there's there's so much to dig into here. I guess we can kind of do it chronologically first to talk about uh, uh, the the match events and then we can get into performances and just what it meant having Giroud back on the pitch generally and, and some of the partnerships, whether they worked or didn't work, but let's start with the goals we conceded. The first one, um, I would say I'm not super concerned about in that, uh, it was never a handball for the free kick to be given. I actually thought the free kick was delivered brilliantly into a, a really difficult place to defend, um, but if we wanted to dig into it, Tim, I'll stay with you just for a second. You could argue the keeper was too rooted to his line. And I joked on Twitter that at halftime, uh, Ospina might want to reevaluate his decision to defend corners and set pieces through meditation. Um, <laughs> would you put the responsibility on Ospina? And in general, were you a little concerned for a guy who's, who's been very encouraging with his performance and, and made a hell of an important stop uh, at the feet of a Ludogratz player at one point in the match with the way he handled uh, set pieces and corners in this match? Yeah, definitely. I think I said it on the pod after the home game that actually a spinner in, in Champions League games kind of makes sense because that's his big weakness and it's not that often tested um, in the Champions League. And Ludogratz did test it a little bit and he wasn't massively convincing. I agree with you on that first goal. I thought the, the delivery was excellent. I was kind of behind and diagonally to it and you know Gibbs rises and he just misses it by about half an inch and it kind of drops into an area where yeah Espina could have come for that but I don't think it was unreasonable you know Gibbs was really stretching for the header and I don't think it was massively unreasonable for him to have been looking at, looking at that and thinking oh Gibbs might get there and then I'm in no man's land 
Um, but generally, yes, I do think that that is a weakness for Espina, and it, it and I think that keeps him out of the team, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's right, especially in the league. Paul, the second goal we conceded, maybe more of a worry in that, um, first of all, Gibbs got roasted, but, you know, again, wasn't given a lot of help, uh, and we've seen that be a problem, our, our left back be left on an island, uh, left back island, you might say. Um, he gets put on his butt, and then the central defenders lose the, the runner in the box, and particularly Mustafi. And my question there is not so much related to Gibbs, but we've discussed that Mustafi defends very well in space, but the worry is how does he defend uh, in his own box? Is this a, a continuation of a theme here that Mustafi seems to struggle most when he has to track runners and, and work in his positioning in his own, defensive, in his own uh, penalty area? Um, yeah, I think uh, when you you look at that goal, um, it, you know, coming first and foremost to the Gibbs moment, he does well to pin him down. He waits for the cavalry arri- to arrive. There's no real cavalry. Yeah, that's true. Uh, um, but he does kind of hold him up for a bit, and he does track him. So, I, you know, I was watching it. I have my eye on Gibbs these days, kind of willing him into the lineup. and think, oh, this is going well. And then, of course, a uh, little Brazilian trickery puts him on his ass for a second and the ball into the box that could have been cut out. Had uh, I'm not good enough as a analyst of centre-back play to work out should Koscielny have taken a better line to cut that out. Um, you know, and then Mustafi's just behind him there. So, uh, as the saying goes, uh, most goals have at least three errors or partial errors in them and uh i think it's a bit like the first goal it's like it's a collective failure uh from a defensive standpoint um you could pick two or three players but how do you say it's it's this guy that you know on the first goal that gibbs couldn't have done a little better that the center backs couldn't have imposed themselves could ask after all both center backs kind of ended up wrong side of the attacker uh, it was a perfect ball in, you know, on the one hand, you got to compliment in both cases, the, the, uh, the ball in the attacking, the speed of movement on the second one, uh, the Brazilianness of, of the influencers of the play, <laughs> yes. but, but, uh, you that, know, by the way, whatever, that's, a, that's, an advanced, that's an advanced analytic that is not nearly represented enough in the, in the analytics community, which is, uh, expected Brazilians or, you know, Brazilian yeah. uh, br- Brazilian heat map. You know, we, we need to start y- introducing that into the analytics world. Yeah, as you may have noticed, I was talking about Brazilians earlier today. Let's move on. <laughs> um, all, all right, look, enough. So, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so uh, I just think collectively we did a very poor job covering that counter and a couple of other counters, and I'm still scratching my head on that, I, I think Tim has some thoughts on our midfield coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this particular case, I'm not sh- too sure there was too much they could do with how well it was swung from the far wing to the other far wing and bypassed the midfield. I'm not sure there was much the midfield could do. So where does that leave you? That leaves you with the defense. Yeah. Um, I, I think, look, the, the one thing that it's it's easy to get frustrated and say, oh, we're shambles defensively, there's a problem. I think at some level you have to step back and say, just for a minute, 
We're reintroducing a guy who's been out for four games. We're introducing a guy who's missed basically the whole season. We have a new left back. We have a central midfield partnership that I don't think has been used this season. We have a new, you know, a rotating in a goalkeeper. We have a new right back who basically hadn't played for us for years. So, you know, three of your back five rotating out. Both of your central midfield, or you know, one of your central midfielders rotating out, and the added body in midfield, i.e., Ramsey rotating in, who hasn't played all season, going back to a a target man center forward. Like you could forgive. I like this, Elliot. We should keep this, Elliot. Well, well, I mean, I'm I'm being circumspect about this particular performance. I I think it it sends some warning shots across our bow, which we'll get to. But so you could see that the other thing is, look. Ludogrits are a tire fire at the back, but I think if we're being fair to them, they have some excellent pacey dribblers, as you pointed out, and they they know how to attack space, and there is space to attack us behind our high line. Um, Tim, we'll get to the Giroud question, because that's going to be a big part of this discussion, but I think when you look at how we handled midfield, Granite Shaka is... Going to be an interesting and polarizing player, I get the sense, because with the ball at his feet, he is as good as we've had in central midfield, and with the ball not at his feet, he is bad. Um, he managed to pull off no tackles and no interceptions in this game, no ball recoveries whatsoever. Um, in the beginning part of the match, he was loose with his passing, so while he is more progressive as a passer, 80, 83% is not really what we're used to from sort of the, the deepest central midfielder. We're usually up in the 90s there. Um, how surprised are you at just how poor his positioning, his tackling, his whole approach to defending the midfield can be at times? I'm very surprised because I, I can't, um, you know, I can't say I knew an awful lot about him before we signed him, but uh, I, I turned to my wife at one point and just after he got his standard yellow card, and I said, have we paid £35 million for a midfielder that can't tackle? Because that's that's a real problem. I think that's a real problem, especially in a team like Arsenal. We have to have one guy who can tackle because we've got like quite a lot of you know fairly decent passers and creative sorts. And that's the type of team we are. So we need a lot of those players. We, I think we need the team to be kind of balanced that way. But, but where, can I just you know, jump in of... for a second? Because I'm sure you feel the same way. It, it's not even just tackling because, I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, people will, will point out you don't want to have to make tackles, right? You want to be in a position yeah, yeah. where you don't have to make tackles. It's not just his tackling. It's how badly out of position he gets himself and then yeah. the extent to which he throws his body around like a shot put to recover from those bad positions. Yeah, that's it, and that's that's the thing about his fouling. Like his his cynicism doesn't bother me. Actually, I think um, it's quite welcome in this Arsenal team. To, to if have it that weren't for the fact cynicism. that it's needed, because he screwed up in the first place. I mean, by the exactly. way, I love Shock. I'm not trying to bury him, but that's that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and that, and the the problem is is I, I wouldn't mind if he was just kind of fouling once in a while because you know stopping promising breakaways, which will happen against Arsenal because we leave space, but. It's that it seems to be literally his only recourse to stop someone. And the thing is, the, the aggressiveness with which he kind of trips players up and kicks their legs away. Um, I really wish he'd channel that into the football because 
he lets players beat him so easily. What seems to happen is they, they just walk past him and then it's, I don't know, it's like he's in another world for a second. He thinks, oh, shite, he's just gone past me. I'm going to have to kick his legs away. I mean, there was an incident after his booking as well where he was kind of shepherding a guy down the touchline who then took a really poor touch. And he didn't uh, like a really poor touch, like it went five, six yards ahead of him. And he and didn't Jacob get back and recover it. Ball. He got beat. No, he, <laughs> he wasn't looking at the ball. He was he was too busy trying to elbow the guy and foul him. When actually in that scenario, all he had to do, the, the guy had done the work for him. And he he literally wasn't looking at the ball at any point. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a real conundrum because I think he has to improve that dr- and drastically too because... I think that's too big a problem to have um, someone who plays in that part of Arsenal's midfield who is literally incapable of, of tackling in any way, shape or form or intercepting or at least Just keeping his player in front of him. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's too big a price to pay, you, you know even what I, so for sorry, all of his good passing. I was just going to say, and I, I've been super interrupted today, so I'll work on that. And you guys can tweet me and write it in the comments. But... Um, it seems like he just and tell me if this is what you see. He is so switched on when we're in possession. He finds the space. He's he sees the runners. I mean, his passing was a little loose early in the game, but I think he he got that out of his system pretty quickly. And then you really saw the range and and quality of his passing. But he switches on so late, out of possession. It's like it's almost like he's booting up or something like an old school computer. And by the time he is aware of the situation, it's bypassed him. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you just kind of wish he had that same diligence on the ball. And when you look at, um, you know, it's, it's probably reductive to turn this into a Jacka versus Coquelin argument, but I, I think that's kind of where we are with our midfield at the moment until... Well, why Ramsey not? We do it every podcast. <laughs> and, and, and comes a little bit more into the equation. But at the moment, my thinking is, well, Coquelin's very good at tackling and he's thoroughly average at passing. Jacka is brilliant at passing and is absolutely terrible <laughs> At tackling and so the kind of the payoff it's which one gives you the bigger payoff um and and at the moment i think it's cockleham which which i i really don't like saying because jacker with his passing is just seems to be what we've been waiting for for years maybe even more than a decade um, we've been waiting for that type of player and yeah it's quite disappointing so far that that we've paid so much money for someone who has this fundamental and quite worrying flaw and I, I just hope it irons out in time and the other thing about his yellow card of course which instantly came to my mind I very much do think that we let his band stand to try and teach him a lesson I do believe that I do believe that was about well, well that that worked a treat <laughs> exactly exactly because he just went and did the same thing so it's, it's obviously not quite worked but at least, you know, it looks like with that, if if my assumption is right, that Wenger is at least thoroughly willing to address it. And in the meantime, he's probably got enough in central midfield that, you know, that he can he can give him a bit of carrot and a bit of stick. But um, and then, yeah, I was, and then, I was kind Tim, of expect- you, you added to Wenger's comments recently, which I think plenty of people scratched their heads on about how... Um, Wenger saw Chaka more as a box-to-box than a DM. Yeah. I think 97% of Twitter world said, what the what? Yeah. Um, now, I, it's not that Wenger's comments make 
are totally resolved and make sense when you read through them. He talks about high energy, box to box kind of stuff. You can see what his issue is in that he can't quite classify him as a DM. So what's left? Um, exactly. He, he better be a box to box kind of, you know, and maybe we understand a little bit more the the delay in introducing him, maybe some of the concerns um, as they. Well, ima- the imagine the day, how, badly, how badly how yeah. badly he must get beaten in training when he's up against the <laughs> likes of, you know, some of the talented players we have who, who might play opposite him in training. Yeah. Now, I have to say, I didn't spot him being as absolutely terribly horrible as you guys did. He was horrible. So, so <laughs> I, but, I, I'll look out for that, probably because I spent my time ooing and eyeing about Cockland's interceptions or something. He was terrible, too. Um, let's, he fucking was not. Yeah, he was horrible. Um, no, but, he wasn't. He was really good. He was bypassed completely in the midfield. But but what... what? Uh, no, he wasn't. Oh, okay, fine. But, well, Paul, how about this? I mean, the thing I will say for Shaka is... The range of his passing and some of the quality of his passing was exceptional. Tim, Tim, you had mentioned this yeah. in, in our WhatsApp chat. I mean, he had some chip balls over the top that were really sensational. And then the one pass right to feet in the half space at the top of the box to Alexis that Alexis slightly miscontrolled. Mm. I guess what I would ask you, Paul, is it's clear that we have a talented player in Shaka. I think it's also clear there's no way you can partner him in midfield with Ramsey now that we've seen how positionally undisciplined both of them are. <laughs> um, is the solution to Shaka that if you're going to use him, Coughlin has to drop back into his more, quote-unquote, traditional holding role, playing behind him so that there's cover? Um Maybe I haven't really thought about it that way. It, it seems Shaka like Shaka can't kinda... be the deepest midfielder if he's going to play like that out of possession, right? Uh, well, it certainly raises the risk standpoint. Uh, there's certainly some teams that will just slice you if if he's your last man. Uh, when I mean, the problem is when he dwells on the ball and gets caught because we're out of possession. Coquelin, uh, I was going to say Coquelin drops deep, but he doesn't doesn't always. He sometimes drops deep when we're truly out of possession. But in that kind of the transitional moment, Coquelin will push forward and, and try and intercept it at source or put a tackle in higher upfield. We've seen him chase the play, which is a good risk-reward strategy. But that means we're going to get, by the better teams, they're going to, they'll play around him. And then it's, you know whoever, yeah. uh, against Chaka. And, uh, yeah, he gets himself into all sorts of trouble there. He sure does. Um, so, so Tim, I'm curious to get your thoughts then on what we do with Chaka, and, and especially vis-a-vis Ramsey, because the interesting thing, if you look at the pass map, Ramsey had the most touches and the most passes in the side, playing supposedly from the right wing. Um there was no right side wide play at all. Jenkinson never got as advanced as Bellerin normally would. Ramsey came infield and dropped deeper, and so we didn't have that guy at the edge of the box like where Theo and Oxley Chamberlain would run in from. Um, and the ball basically went through Shaka and, and Ramsey and kind of bypassed Cochran to, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, how do you see Ramsey's involvement influencing this game and then potentially what that means going forward um i think at the moment his route in is probably a wobis spot 
um, at this particular moment in time, with the central midfield, what, what I'm getting is that um, Coquelin and Cazorla is still the best partnership we've got. That may not be the case in a few months because um, as much as we're, you know, uh, some of us more than others, anxious perhaps about Granite Jacker now, we're anxious about Aaron Ramsey. You know, we were all anxious about Alexis, Alexis Sanchez as our as our central striker um, a few weeks ago. We were started the season quite anxious about Theo Walcott suddenly being a right winger again. And, and you know, things can change quickly and these kind of partnerships can pop up quite quickly. Um so, but at the moment, while he's feeling his way in, I think Rams's shot is away of his position. Um, and then, you know, it it depends how things develop with Cazorla as well, because it doesn't look like he's recovering from this Achilles injury particularly quickly. And I think that's a worry because um, I, I believe I'm right in saying he had that injury last season. It didn't seem to be recovering. These very are quickly. tough to get over. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And and it also might be an age thing as well, because all is just beginning to get to that age where injuries do affect you a little bit more. Because before, prior to last season, he was almost never injured, almost never. Um, so, you know, there might be an in for him there if he can, you know, form a partnership with somebody. I, I think that Ramsey has to um, reconnect a little bit with the basics of the game. Um, which is you how, think? <laughs> I mean, well, everything's you, a back heel, a, a overhead kick. A, I mean, he doesn't want to do yeah. anything if it's simple. Can I, mean, can I say this in Ramsey's defense a little bit? No, uh, I think. Oh, um, I think he does a bit too much of that stuff because when he comes back, he doesn't quite have the match fitness. He's not the fastest player. You know, he's not going to dribble past somebody. I, I think that puts a lot of pressure on his game till he's back up to full form and he has a tendency to try and cure the problem by flicking uh you know by tricks by which when when they're part of a fuller game and he, and he's getting into better positions and he's playing a little better but i really do think when he when he uh, he's not the fastest and it puts a lot of pressure on his game when he's when he's not match fit and you tend to see a lot of bad flicks and tricks yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the thing is for Ramsey, he can do those basics really, really well. And we know it because that's how he found his form the first time round. Um, I think a lot of people don't really remember so much that in that, that season, 2013-14, where he got, when he got 16 Premier League goals and he was injured for three months. But actually his tackling um, statistics were, were really, really good as well. Lots of ball recoveries, lots of interceptions. And kind of the... The, the prelude to that, the end of the 2012-13 season where Arsenal were in a mad scramble for fourth and tried to do it by being a bit more defensively solid. He was playing, you know, quite defensively alongside Arteta and, you know, being the legs very much defensively alongside him. And he is capable of doing that. And I think um, Tim from 7am Kickoff wrote some things last year saying that actually... At the end of last year, he started, his his stats looked like a striker, basically in terms of you know shots and and getting forward and things like that. That he was basically, you know, playing as a striker that runs from deep. And actually, probably what he needs to do this stage is reconnect with that desire, you know, to win the ball back and and move. I I think he does move the ball quite well. I thought he moved the ball. Um, decently last night uh, once he got into the game a little bit. 
Um, but I mean, at, at the moment, I think Ramsey's not quite in the equation just because he's probably not quite up to scratch yet. But in probably the international break might be a good thing because he'll um, work a little bit of his rust off in a Wales shirt, um, which which probably won't be bad for us. And I think by the time you know the United game comes around, around that time. He'll really, and particularly if Cazorla's not back by then, um, then he'll really become part of that conversation. But at the moment, I think it's too early to say because he could, you know, something completely random could happen. We could have a couple of injuries and he could end up playing next to El Nenny for five games and it might work brilliantly because nobody foresaw a lot of our good partnerships. Nobody foresaw, um, well, few people foresaw Alexis being a brilliant striker with Theo next to him. Few people foresaw. Coquelin and Cazorla making a good a good partnership. Few people foresaw Hector Bellerin coming into the team and, and being so good. So, um, so what you're moment, basically saying is none of us know anything. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. I, I don't. I, I can't argue with that yet, logic. But, but I got to not... give some props to Mean Lean. He never shut up about uh, San- Sanchez. I mean, we all talked about Sanchez uh, doing a kind of Aguero at some point. And then we go back to concluding that maybe it was never going to happen. Mean Lee never gave up on it. Linus was always plugging away. Why don't we play Sanchez at striker? Why don't we give him another shot? We only gave him Everton. We only so anyway. No, it's, it's also a fair question to ask the manager: Is why didn't sure you know why didn't, why didn't he, he spot it? Yeah, why didn't he try it sooner? I mean, I'm sure he has his reason. It just it certainly seems to be a, a workable solution. Paul, we. Uh, we got back into the match <clears throat> and and ultimately won it, obviously. But before we get to Ozil's sploosh-inducing goal, um, it was an interesting game because Granit Xhaka struggled in ways we've already covered. Olivier Giroud struggled in ways we haven't yet covered. And Aaron Ramsey struggled uh, in ways that we've somewhat covered. And Ramsey had an assist. Giroud had a goal. And Xhaka had a goal. Um, so it's, you know, it is one of those those weird things about football, which is you cannot be contributing on in the totality of the play and still pop up with a a moment that that is decisive um it's sort of olivier giroud's modus operandi actually is showing up um with moments that are decisive but before we talk about his goal or his decisive contribution how did his inclusion impact the way we built up in the play in general for you badly <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, um, I, can I can I give you a pretty incredible statistic? I mean, it's not incredible, but just a statistic. Mesut Ozil exchanged 14 passes at the weekend with our center forward Alexis Sanchez against Sunderland. He played two passes to Giroud and received none from him. Um, uh, I mean, in, that, in fact, even in this game, didn't he put most of his attacking passes into Sanchez? Yes. Wasn't it? Ozil and Sanchez. Uh, Cochrane fans found Ozil the, the interesting by thing too is if you look at where the passes came from for Giroud, and this is the other point. Yeah. You know, if you look at this game, Olivier Giroud at center forward had 35 touches in 90 minutes, whereas Sanchez at center forward at the weekend had almost 60 touches in 90 minutes. So you just have a center sure. forward who is who who finds it more challenging to get involved and finds it more challenging to involve his teammates. Um, yeah, you know, which and goes ironically, to... the manage, manager almost crit, criticized Alexis for, if you like, dropping too deep too often to get involved in the play, and that he criticized him that he really wanted him to kind of hold the attacking line a little bit more, 
So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm with you on, on where you're going, but I think, I think the answer is somewhere in between, but a lot closer to where Alexis is. Than well, where we certainly Giroud saw is. Alexis struggle to really understand his role the way he had been anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it, it, what makes it more difficult is Giroud didn't have one contribution to a goal. He had two. I mean, it was him covering back the tackle that set up yes, El Neni. Yes. So, again, doesn't change the fundamental point, which is we didn't... Our game was nothing like it could have been and should have been against Ludogratz. And it's hard to get away from the fact that Giroud is frustratingly static, uh, especially, I mean, this Ludogratz, God bless them. Um, they play with a nice high line for a lot of the game. Okay, they drop back for some of it. Well, it's just so noticeable it, too, right? I mean, we ripped their high line to pieces at the Emirates, and I realize it's at the Emirates, yeah. and, and they got early goals in this game, which let them drop a little deeper, but they still played a pretty high line, and yeah. one, you know, one change in personnel, and you could see how tough it was for us to get behind it. To the point where the game ended up with Ozil making run after run, mm-hmm. uh, fate, fatally and fatefully at the end. But that was not his only uh, on the shoulder of the defender run. In fact, he'd done one. Th- the one where he ran to the keeper was 60 seconds before that, uh, but got called offside. It was good practice for his next one because it, it was millimeters that he was onside. I'm sure every one of us thought, holy shit, he's 15 yards offside by the time the ball landed. Um, but that was something he was forced to do because it wasn't going to be... You're damning him and, and praising him in the same voice because Giroud comes back, nicks the ball, so there's no way he was going to be on that line. But he was never going to be on that line anyway. It was up to Ozil or Sanchez. And uh, maybe even Sanchez isn't ideally suited to attacking off the, the high line, but he's, he's pretty damn good at it. But uh, you know, we've often talked about Ozil being faster than people think he is or than he looks. Uh, he's got a lot of pace off that. And for all the criticism then of, I know I'm going off a little bit, but all the criticism Ozil gets for not being goal hungry, if you look at that last few minutes, I mean, he made it his mission with the somebody needs to get a goal here uh, philosophy. He had chances throughout the, the match for, for what did. it's worth. I mean, and, and, you know, he was he was played in. Um, there was a beautiful volley. Do you remember who, who played in the ball from the left wing from kind of where Gibbs would normally be? Any, any guesses? I don't remember, but I know the volley was blocked. He hit it really sweetly. Yeah, Francis Coquelin. Was it Coughlin? It was a br- yeah. it was a brilliant uh, little chip ball into him. He had he was played in where he had another one of those sort of tame side foot finishes. I mean, he had his chances. He was offside on a couple occasions, I believe. But well, well, Tim, this is really it, right? I mean, Olivier Giroud is a player who makes decisive contributions. But was this sort of the perfect example of how those decisive contributions still aren't worth? the disruptive quality it has to some of our other players and our general build-up play? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, th- I think it's telling, you know, look, where did his goal come from? Um, a cross was put into into the box and he rose higher than anyone else and headed it in. That I mean, that's him all over. That's what he brings to us. That's what makes him very valuable. Um, but, and, and as, as Paul, Paul was right to highlight his contribution to Ozil's winner as well. Um, but... 
if, if I'm being really unkind to him, and it is unkind to him because it's not effectively his fault, it's just the type of player he is. But for a lot of the match, um, Olivier Giroud was where our attacks went to die. Um, you know, like there was some nice, fairly good, fast-paced build-up play, and then it got to Giroud, and it either stopped and went backwards and had to restart again because everybody's cottoned on to this kind of flicking the ball behind the centre-back um, kind of thing now, um, and they just crowd him out. So all he can really do is go back, back in the direction of travel, as it were. And yeah, it just happened a little bit too often. And in, and in fact, I think now players find it quite easy to kind of steal in front of him on the edge of the box and just take the ball off of his toes. So best case scenario, he stopped the ball and gave it back to someone and we started again. Worst case scenario, it just didn't get to him at all. And it was uh, it was quite static and predictable. But yeah, you throw a cross in the box and you've always got a decent chance. And I agree with you. It's, it, I don't think it's worth the payoff. And I think the last two, it, it's really harsh because, you know, he scored three goals in two games. Well, but that's um, just it, right? It's worth the payoff at 80 minutes when you desperately exactly. need a goal and you, you have to start throwing balls into the box. Precisely. And that was the double whammy in this game because when 70 minutes came along, we didn't have a striker to bring on. No, no, precisely. And that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say, basically. He's got three goals, goals in two games. And um, it, it sounds kind of ludicrous, but all it's done to me is prove that he's, he's a brilliant option to bring off the bench. Um, and maybe that's a bit of confirmation bias on my part, but I, I completely agree with, with both of you that it, it's not really, worth, um, not really worth the payoff in terms of what we lose. And I think we saw that Alexis wasn't nearly as effective on this occasion. And, you know, you're playing Ozil further away from Alexis, which I don't like. There are two best players. I think they should be playing close together. They do have a good understanding. Well, and if, um, and if Ozil's not exchanging passes with your center forward, you're not playing the right center forward, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Two passes Precisely. exchanged between them in 90 minutes, that's it's not good enough. Precisely, and you, you're limiting the effectiveness of, you know, unwittingly, obviously, but it limits the effectiveness of our two best players. Um, so all, all the last two games have done, um, albeit good away victories with Giroud making a serious contribution to both is um, proved to me that he's an excellent option to bring on as a sub. Yeah, I think we are at the point now where no matter how much you like Olivier Giroud and feel you have to defend him against idiots like me who feel the need to malign him, it's pretty clear that there is a better arsenal when we start with a different formation, a, a different approach with Alexis up front than there is with Giroud. And that's not because Giroud is not a contributor and someone who can provide a valuable contribution over the course of a season. But I think we saw it in in full display against Ludogratz, the a, a team that could not keep us from running rampant behind their high line just a couple weeks ago um, was fairly comfortable at times doing so with him in the middle, and Alexis found it very tough to know where to be. Um, and th there were some uneven performances all over the pitch. And I think, you know, sometimes you say, well, if we have a guy who gets us goals, then that's really his only important contribution. But I think that is an oversimplification in this, in this case. Really quickly, before we talk briefly about the North London Derby and, and just what we expect from that match, we have to talk about Ozil's winner. Um, or, you know, just 
sit here in our pants and touch ourselves in silence for five minutes, and then we can talk about the North London Derby, whichever you guys prefer. But, but I think the, the thing that strikes me as I watch Alexis this season and as I watch Ozil this season and Ozil on that goal is that this is why Barcelona wins Champions League. This is why Real Madrid and Bayern Munich win Champions League. Yes, they've had good managers, and yes, they're fairly well-drilled, and they're big clubs. When you have players of that caliber, you can win everything because they are capable of lifting their game in the big moment to devastating heights. And, Paul, that goal that Ozil scores is the timing of the run. And, by the way, a word to Elneny, whose first touch on the pitch is a, is a beautiful ball over the top, timed perfectly. But the Ironically, first... replacing Chaka uh, yeah. and doing a very Chaka-like yeah. perfect ball over the top. A phenomenal squad player who who arguably is even more than that and may get to prove it over time. But, you know, Ozil spots the run. He's on the shoulder of the last defender. He pulls the ball down effortlessly. He chips the keeper. He cuts inside. He fakes a shot. He puts everyone on their ass, and then he slots it home comfortably. And I mean, this is really what we all want, Paul. Right? Is more players and player. You know, I mean, you can only have so many, but players like this who can make watching ninety minutes of football worth it in a single moment of genius. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he just surfed the wave on that. I shot myself three times thinking he'd he'd over-egged the pudding. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I thought he had blown it. I thought he had lost his composure when, in fact, he was ten steps ahead of everyone, including me watching at home. Yeah, and some maybe that's what this has all been about, all those other situations and opportunities. It's worth rolling the dice to go for the wonder goal because you end up with something like that. You'd like to think that this is truly a formative moment of, in terms of his attitude to goal scoring. I mean, I don't like to read in too much to Messet's body language, but he does seem to have a reticence about really, really enjoying uh, having the hunger to score and to enjoy it afterwards in the same way a true goal scorer does. Now, I think that's, I think it's dangerous for anybody as unskilled as myself or anybody else I've ever heard talk about uh, Messet's body language. But you kind of think there's a bit of that thing where he holds himself back. You know, you just want him to really, really go for it. After, after this, how can he deprive us going forward of not being the most selfish bastard when he gets into those Dennis Bergkamp kinds of positions? Don't, you know, don't make that extra pass. Well, you know what, though? In his defense, to some extent, you know, it's a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome of playing with someone like Cristiano Ronaldo who will stare you off the pitch if you don't give it to him every opportunity. I think Ozil is developing as a man, as a player, and as an Arsenal teammate into realizing I'm not the yin to Ronaldo's yang. I'm the yin and the yang. You know, it's me and Alexis, and, and I can take shots, and I can make runs, and I can take the responsibility of scoring goals because I don't have a Ronaldo and a Bale and an Higuain, you know, running out in front of me. And, and that's the intelligence and development, you know, sort of organic development of the player. That's right. And, and, and I mean, Wenger is continually cajoling him in, in front of the media every three weeks about... Now he needs to push on and score his goals. Now he's doing it for a reason. You know, it is an issue. Fucker he's needs to start about- getting some assists, for God's sake. 
I know, yeah. <laughs> but, and then you see that goal and you see Wenger talking about how, if we go back a week or two, about, uh, you know, Ozil in training and the goals he scores and that the keeper and the defenders don't know what he's going to do next and they can't read him. And you think, how many of those... This goal he scored last night, that was not the first time he did something like that. He That's probably his practice routine. That's what a practice game with Ozil is like. And yet, here's the amazing thing. If you if you go on Twitter right now and look up Ozil finishing and look at tweets up to about the 80th minute of the match, he'd blown <laughs> chances. It wasn't his best yeah. match in front of goal. I mean, the funny thing is, he missed that lob against Sunderland. He had that weak side foot on the right channel against Sunderland. He had the weak side foot on the left channel against Ludogratz. Tim, Mesut Ozil, the thing that's really exciting is there's another gear for him to go up, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and, you know... Everything, absolutely everything in that goal is perfect. And um, I think one of the things um, about... Up there is one of your favourite Arsenal Champions League goals? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And actually, there's there's a, there's even like a little half faint at the end that I really, really like. He takes an extra half touch. So he puts the goalkeeper on his ass. He puts those two defenders on their asses, And then one of them kind of half gets up. And I think if it had pulled the trigger at that moment, there was a chance that the defender he was he was certainly prepared to try and he kind of shimmies it, hasn't given it up. Yeah, and he's he's already shaped to kick the ball, but he sees this and he kind of takes a really like not even a half faint, like a quarter faint, um, to take the ball away again before you know really really making sure. And I think the two things I really really enjoyed about this goal, first of all. You guys said that, that you shit yourselves a bit and thought you'd overdone it. Ordinarily, I, I would think exactly the same. Whenever anyone beats the goalkeeper and takes more than one touch, I'm there going, put it in, put it in, put it in, e- even if I'm just doing it internally. But honestly, I remember the moment I completely relaxed because um, because I trust him. And uh, actually, it was a little bit... I, I don't know if you remember Alexis's second goal away at Hull. Um he did something fairly similar in that he rounded the goalkeeper and then he took about an extra two touches um, before he really made sure. And then he actually blasted it into the top corner because there were two guys on the line. Um, but the, the fact that I completely relaxed, that I trusted uh, what he was doing. And the other thing I really liked about it, Paul touched on how much he seemed to enjoy the goal. What I really liked was he stays so, so calm under pressure and then the instant the ball goes in, he goes mental. Um, and that tells you that he understood all through that process what a pressure moment this was. Um, he understood the gravity of the situation all of the way through. Because, But he was able to isolate it and, and still stay calm because the second the ball hits the net, um, you know, he doesn't usually celebrate that exuberantly, but he, you know, he really, really went for it. Um, and that and that shows you not only that he enjoyed it, but that he understood how much pressure he was under and how important it was. And yet, he was so he was cognizant of that, but he was able to stay so calm at the same time. And I, I hope it's a kind of light bulb moment for him. And I I said this on Twitter that this run came, albeit I know Giroud had run back to win the ball, but I mean Özil made this exactly the same run sixty seconds earlier. The fact that he scored this goal and made this type of run when it wasn't Alexis up front, you know, just 
vacating the space. So it's kind of, oh, well, I suppose I'll run into it. It was when Giroud was up front, he was still minded to think, no, do you know what? They've got a really high line here. I, I fancy a bit of that. I can get in behind that. And, you know, frankly, Giroud probably can't and won't. Um, and that he, he had that kind of that killer instinct for the goal in that last five minutes. He smelt that chance. And that's actually quite a strikerish thing to do. And I think that's incredibly encouraging. Yeah, and, It was and taking I'll, on the responsibility, wasn't it? In that l- yeah. last five minutes. That's what Ozil did. He said, somebody needs to go for the goal uh, by sitting on their shoulder. It's, um... and, and sorry, just a really quick point to, to your point, Elliot. Um, basically, you'd summarise the last two games as Alexis won it for us against Sunderland and Ozil won it for us against Ludogorets. Mm. Yeah, and and that's, I mean, you know, we, we love our players and we fall in love with our own players, right? So we fall in love with the Oxley Chamberlains and the Theo Walcotts and the Aaron Ramseys and, and that, you know, that's great. But the reality is Alexis and Ozil are the best players at our club right now and they may be two of the three or four best players in the Premier League and two of the 10 or 15 best players in the world. And that's what had been missing and I think that's where a lot of fan frustration had come from. We've had cheap players. You know, we we had Thierry Henry and Cesc Fabregas and Robin Van Persie, boo, hiss, I know, I get it. But, you know, and Pires and, and Vieira, these players that really, Bergkamp obviously, that just steal your imagination and you're always on bated breath waiting for them to do something extraordinary and we went through a fallow period where eh, we had nice players you know Olivier Giroud is a nice player but can either of you honestly say Olivier Giroud someone you want to go to the stadium to watch because he's going to do something electrifying it it's just not that way and these fantasy players like Alexis and, and Ozil add something, not just in terms of the results, but in terms of the excitement of watching the club again. I'm going to pay Ozo kind of a compliment, backhand a compliment, I guess, in a way is, he is the the rare footballer who is better the more time he has to think. So many footballers, when they have more time one-on-one with the keeper, when they have more time to play the ball, panic, shit themselves, overthink it, and screw it up. Um. Ozil is the rare player who the more time you give him, the more he kills you because he's so cerebral and sees the game and understands the game so brilliantly. When he gets better with those instinctive finishes, like the lob effort, like the first-time effort against Sunderland, he, he really will be unplayable, and he's, he's pretty much there now. Anyway, um, I think it's a great point. I think the same is true of Sanchez, and you definitely, I mean, you see it in the real greats like Messi, uh, Muller is very good at that. Uh, Lewandowski. I mean, they just inv- enjoy torturing the the player or players ahead of them because they're that good. Yeah, and they see the you know the the, the great players see the game in a in a way that the other players can't see. They see the angles. They see the movement. Um, so it's 17 years consecutive qualifying for the for the last 16 and i have no doubt we will win the group and draw barcelona in the round of 16 um who will finish second in their group for this one time and anyway um let's talk north london derby just really really quickly and wrap up um tim who do you think he starts with you can make whatever assumptions you want about injury but i mean what do you, what does he do <laughs> how does he what get do this what do we right? know about Cazorla, i guess well i don't think we know um I, I spoke to someone uh, who might know about these things uh, on the on the on the flight back from Bulgaria, and apparently it doesn't look good for Kazola this weekend, which I happen to think is a massive blow. 
Jesus. Um, it's arguably because, been our best non-Alexis Rosal player this season. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that opens up all sorts of questions about what you do with central midfield. Um, because, yeah, none of the other partnerships really exist yet. Um, I think, you know, Walcott is definitely back in. I think Gibbs has probably played his way out of the team with this little kind of mini run he's had. The, um, the only thing on that one, Tim, is with Kyle Walker as his marker uh, and pace being the thing. I mean, Kyle Walker's good, but he's not super tricky. Uh, I'd be tempted to give Gibbs one more game just for the pace factor. Maybe, maybe. Um, and obviously, like, Tottenham attack a lot through their fullbacks um, yeah. as well. And, you know, you could say having another kind of attacking, a, a slightly more penetrative fullback um, might be a good thing. I, I do think Monreal will come back in. I think Iwobi will come back in. I think Walcott will come back in. I think Alexis will start up front. I think Ramsey and Giroud will be on the bench, which I think would be great because those are two very, very good options to bring on should we need them. Um, and I think, you know, someone like Ramsey on the bench is quite multi-purpose. You could bring him on in pretty much any scenario, um, particularly because Iwobi probably won't last the 90 minutes um, at this stage. Um, so for, for me... What he does up front and in defence is pretty self-explanatory. I'm absolutely certain that Francis Coquelin will start. And I think you might see Granite Jacker next to him, um, which I can appreciate because Spurs are a team that like to press very high and therefore having, you know, that's why Cazorla is such a big miss. Um, and we saw last year, I think, was he, he was sick, wasn't he, last year? And, Played the first yeah. half. Cockerell Nenny was at uh, White Hart Lane, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And in the first half uh, um, at the Emirates, yeah, because Ola was ill and he really wasn't himself, and it really affected us. Oh yeah, um, I remember that one. Quite badly, he had to come off at half time, and that midfield just never really worked for the whole game. So I don't know. I, I think you'll probably see Cockerell and and, um, and Granite Jacker. Um, start in the midfield for me that's the only question I, I think as far as I'm concerned the rest of the team pretty much picks itself I think like I said earlier Ludogorets is was was you know um, evidence that we should go back to um, go back to what we know as it were and then you know Ramsey Chamberlain Giroud those are those are three pretty good attacking subs if we need them do you think Theo will be back yes Okay. Uh, Paul, your lineup? Uh, very close to that. I, well, I think Tim's right. That'll be the picks. Like I said, I be, might be very tempted to pick Gibbs uh, for this one game in particular, although he's been good but also shown some uh, some rustiness or, or some some flaws. Uh, I think if you're going to have ludic- a player exposed and if a Wobie's there, inevitably there's going to be some exposure for the left back. Don't you think you just have to go with the more solid Monreal, though, to be fair, when exposed, he's not done well this season either. Gibbs is the guy who, at least from a pace standpoint, doesn't need to be covered. Um, but I still think it'll be Monreal and, and overall, over the long run, I think that's reasonable because, you know, he's he is he has been the more solid player in over the last couple of seasons, and he does help 
our build. I think Gibbs has done very well in terms of the attacking end, but you know Monreal is just a better foil for helping us build play on that side. So you, there isn't a wrong choice. Well, there could be. There I have a, a wrong suspicion choice, but, yep. that he's going to play Elneny and Cochrane in midfield if if there's no Cazorla. I think Shaka's mm. ability to be bypassed so easily combined with the more advanced way we're playing, the more front-footed way, means that any missed tackle or failure to press them in midfield or any loss of the ball could have devastating consequences. I think, I think Elneny, that's a good call, actually. Yeah, I think, I, and I hate it because I love Shaka, what he does on the ball. And I think against weaker teams, you play Shaka because he can just destroy them and pick them apart, and you can tolerate the occasional error defensive in def- defensive positioning and being bypassed. I don't think you can afford that against Spurs, especially with the way they're going to press. The one thing I will say is, if they have, you know, if they have Harry Kane, ironically, it, it could. It could be better for us just because I think that slows down the way they want to attack. I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being fanciful there because he has hurt us pretty bad in the past with his running. But, you know, Mertesacker is a different animal than, than Mustafi, who's a little more mobile. Um, I I don't know what he'll do with Ramsey, but I think he started him midweek specifically to have an excuse to not start him at the weekend. So we'll see. I, I would hope for Theo, Alexis, Iwobi. Um, I gosh, I want to say I hope for Shaka, but I think it could be, I think it could be Coughlin and El Nenny. Um, and we'll see where that goes. Just real quick, predictions, Paul. What, what's your expectation? Oh Jesus! Um, I think we'll do it. I think we'll find a way. Two one. Two one. What about what about you, Tim? Um, I think it might be a draw. Yeah, I, th- I think it might finish one or something like that. The only thing that scares me here um, is that they have two years now of playing in, in Pochettino's pressing system, and they really know you know, every movement they want to make in that system. We are still learning a little bit, I think, of who we are in this new system, um, and that, that can be a little problematic. We saw against Liverpool, it doesn't take 90 minutes of faltering. It just takes 15 or 20 minutes of faltering against a team that presses with the way we're playing right now to give up a bunch of good chances in a row. So it's just going to take tremendous concentration and focus throughout the 90 minutes to not to not have those lapses. I think the thing with Spurs that you know is they are going to struggle in the last 20. So you know, maybe keep the game a little bit dull and boring, maybe be a little more passive and sit deeper for 60 or 70 minutes and then really try to get at them in the last 20 when you know they're going to fade. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about I, anymore. I think you're no. I think you made a lot of good points here. I, I wonder if there's a ringer doing your spot today. No, but, I, um, I've got nothing left. Let's let's do this. Let's but let's. Cockle Nanny uh, makes mm-hmm. sense for everything you've just said. Yeah, I I think that there's We're going steady. to be a point in this season where Shaka's contributions are really important, and and where he's regularly starting, and maybe it's only alongside Santi Cazorla who can understand a little bit how to how to protect those spaces that, that he leaves vulnerable. But I don't know if that time is now, and I, I think certainly the vulnerability he showed in midweek is going to be 
is going to be in the manager's mind when he picks this side. So we'll see. Um, Tim is on Twitter. It's still Birdo. Uh, he will be doing other podcasts this week, so be sure not to listen to ours and listen to that one. Uh, Paul is on Twitter at Posn in My Pants. Gentlemen, I really appreciate it as always. Pleasure. Perfect. Uh, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Please give us five-star reviews and say nasty things about me in the segment below that in the area where you write the review. Um, it's a Darby at the weekend. I am already shitting myself just thinking about it. I hope you are too. Uh, we will come back and dissect that shit uh, following the match. Until then, cheers and enjoy the football. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.